Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dr. J's Shakespeare. I'm Dr. J. In today's episode, I'll be discussing another passage from Shakespeare's comedy, A Midsummer Night's Dream. A Midsummer Night's Dream, a comedy on erotic love and consequent marriage, has three sets of characters. First is a group from the Athenian aristocracy, including Theseus, the Duke of Athens, Hippolyta, Queen of the Amazons, about to marry Theseus as his prize in war, and the four young lovers, Hermia, Helena, Lysander, and Demetrius. Second is a group of Athenian tradesmen who hope to put on a play for the duke at his wedding. And third, the denizens of fairyland, including Titania, the queen of the fairies, Oberon, the king of the fairies, and Puck, his attendant, as well as various fairies attending on Titania. These three groups interact in the wood outside Athens during the night of the play's title, and this interaction provides both the comedy and the pathos of the play, as well as the resolution of the love quadrangle. In today's episode, I'll be focusing on the fairy kingdom. Titania and Oberon, the king and queen of the fairies, are married but separated and are involved in a custody battle, if you will. Titania has adopted the child of a mortal woman who died in childbirth, and Oberon wants to have him. In their first scene together, Titania and Oberon express their jealousies regarding each other, and Titania, in a beautiful speech, tells Oberon how she came to have the child and why she will never give him up. I mention the beauty of Titania's speech because it's poetic beauty I'm primarily interested in in this episode. As befits a play about erotic love, there is some of Shakespeare's most beautiful poetry in A Midsummer Night's Dream. As A Midsummer Night's Dream is a comedy about love, there is also a great deal of silliness combined with wry observation. Two of Shakespeare's most familiar lines appear in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Reason and love keep little company together, and what fools these mortals be. A story of young love must have as well poetry of great poignancy, as in the painful lines of Helena I discussed in episode four. Perhaps less expectedly, there are also lines of disconcerting meanness, whose truth we recognize, even though we might wish they didn't appear in a comedy. Today's passage contains both some of these lines of meanness and the lines of great beauty, and though I'd like to exclude the mean lines and present only the beauty, honesty compels me, as it perhaps compelled Shakespeare, to include both. So, back to Titania and Oberon. Having explained to Oberon why she will not give him the child, she rejects his request one more time and departs. It's here I'll take up the passage. Having watched Titania leave, Oberon declares he will torment her for defying him. He will make her fall in love with some ugly beast. 
To carry out this plan, Oberon instructs Puck to fetch him a flower whose juice, dropped into a sleeper's eye, will cause them to fall madly in love with the first being they see. The beautiful poetry comes here, somewhat unexpectedly, as Oberon tells Puck of how this flower came to be and how he, Oberon, came to know of it. He recalls to Puck a time when the two of them, sitting on a bluff overlooking the ocean, saw a mermaid on a dolphin's back singing with such beauty that the ocean's waves did calm and stars shot from the sky. He then describes seeing at the same time Cupid in the sky between the moon and the earth shoot his arrow at a virgin but miss, the arrow instead striking a white flower which as a result turns purple and becomes magic. These are delicately beautiful lines, but once Puck departs to fetch this flower, the wild pansy, Oberon returns to his meanness. Let's listen. From A Midsummer Night's Dream by William Shakespeare, Act Two, Scene One. Exit, Titania and her fairies. Oberon. Well, Go thy way. Thou shalt not from this grove till I torment thee for this injury. My gentle Puck, come hither. Thou rememberest when once we sat upon a promontory and heard a mermaid on a dolphin's back, uttering such dulcet and harmonious breath that the rude sea grew civil at her song and certain stars shot madly from their spheres to hear the sea maid's music. Puck, I remember. Oberon, that very time I saw, but thou couldst not, flying between the cold moon and the earth, Cupid all armed. A certain aim he took at a fair vestal throned in the west, and loosed his love shaft smartly from his bow as it should pierce a hundred thousand hearts. But I did see young Cupid's fiery shaft quenched in the chaste beams of the watery moon, and the imperial vultures passed on in maiden meditation, fancy-free. Yet marked I where the bolt of Cupid fell. It fell upon a little western flower, before milk-white, now purple with love's wound, and maidens call it love in idleness. Fetch me that flower, the herb I showed thee once. The juice of it on sleeping eyelids laid will make or man or woman madly dote upon the next live creature that it sees. Fetch me this herb, and be thou here again ere the leviathan can swim a league. Puck. I'll put a girdle round the earth in forty minutes. He exits. Oberon. Having once this juice, I watched Tanya when she is asleep and dropped the liquor in her eyes. The next thing then she, waking, looks upon, be it lion, bear, or wolf, or bull, on meddling monkey or on busy ape, she shall pursue it with the soul of love, and ere I take this charm from off her sight, 
as I can do with another herb, I'll make her render up her page to me. Enter Demetrius, followed by Helena. Oberon, but who comes here? I am invisible, and I will overhear their conference. And now the fun begins. Oberon hears Demetrius reject Helena and, sympathizing with her, instructs Puck to put the juice in Demetrius's eye so that when he wakes he will see Helena and fall in love with her and all will be well. But Puck puts the juice in Lysander's eye instead and he falls in love with Helena and all is topsy-turvy. So, why such images of beauty, a mermaid on a dolphin's back, stars shooting in the sky, Cupid between the cold moon and earth, his arrow drowned in the moonbeams, a flower purple with love's wound? The meanness, Oberon's determination to make Titania pay by making her fall in love with a beast, we might not like, but we recognize its truth. The silliness, the warped feelings, the confusion, the wryly objective distance, we recognize the truth of all these things. But at the center of the play is this flower, the source of the confusion and the passion. And the flower and everything about the flower is beautiful. But what are these beautiful images doing in a play of silliness and confusion. One simple explanation is that Shakespeare had these lines sitting around and just threw them in here as as good a place as any. But in poetry, unlike science, where Occam's razor tells us that the simplest answer is also the best, in poetry, the most interesting answer is usually the best. In saying this, I keep in mind that there is a difference between interesting and far-fetched. An interesting notion about a play or any other work of art must account both for the work in its entirety and our most profound knowledge of human reality, of human nature and experience. So what is real about this magic flower? Well, it's the best answer I know of for why we fall in love with who we do and not with others. While we're sleeping, a fairy comes and puts juice in our eye. I've, of course, read other explanations, psychological, biological, etc., but none correspond to the totality of erotic love as well as this. Such love comes out of nowhere. It is unreasonable. It controls us more than we control it. It both makes us foolish and gives meaning to our lives. It breaks our hearts and fulfills our dreams. It makes us happy beyond measure and makes us miserable beyond measure. It is dangerous. It can make us mean if our souls are barren. It's easier to dismiss it than to submit to it or at least less painful. But at heart, it is something beautiful, something that the language of science and reason can't explain without destroying it. 
and we find that beauty at the center of the mixed-up, muddled-up, shook-up world of A Midsummer Night's Dream, in the image of the mermaid singing while riding a dolphin's back, in the image of Cupid in the light of the moon, and in the image of the wild pansy purple with love's wound, which I first came to know and love more than any other flower under the name of Johnny Jump-Ups, without knowing it was the flower of a Midsummer Night's Dream. Until next time, I'm Dr. J.